0: to hear about prayers in the great assembly, uh, a look at worship texts in First and Second Chronicles. Uh, my name is Bobby Valentine. Uh, this is John Mark Hicks. Everybody uh, knows that. Uh, we've been doing this kind of thing for a long time, and it's been a great blessing uh, to me personally, and I appreciate seeing all y'all. Uh, most of y'all have been here for many of those years, and uh, just appreciate the affirmation. So, tonight we're going to begin with a prayer, and then we're going to talk about a prayer that is one of the most programmatic uh, prayers in the whole Bible, I would, I would say. And it uh, pulls out a theology uh, that is important for the chronicler. I believe it's important for us today. And I, th- I think the chronicler is kind of like a, a homiletician. I think he's reading First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, and he's preaching sermons to his community. And he's trying to get them to do what we're doing today, which is biblical theology for our day. And to get, connect people to the life of God and the life uh, of, well, as Richard Hughes put today, to tell our story so that we can be a part of that in our own generation to know that God has not abandoned us. So anyway, let's pray, and then um, we're going to begin. Is that all right? Yeah, so, sounds good. All right. Well, come on in, and then we'll, then we'll pray. Again, thank everybody for being here. Um, hope the pie was good, and all that other stuff. Well, let's pray. O oh Lord God of Israel, Father of Jesus, we praise Your holy name. We praise You that You have created this world as a, as a home, as a, as a temple, you did not need this, but you expressed your love and brought us forth. Your whole creation as a place that you can dwell and have fellowship with humans and everything that you have made. And Father, we're so grateful for that. We thank you that this notion of temple uh, continued on and that bore fruit in the incarnation of the word that was with you. Jesus Christ, who is with us, and that we will live with you in this home. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for everything that you do. Be with us tonight, and it's through Jesus, our big brother, our Lord, and our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, I add my welcome. Thank you for being here. And uh, this is, as Bobby said, I think this is really... um, one of those peak or mountain moments in the story of the Bible. In fact, the Chronicler devotes three chapters, chapters—what we, how we have divided it up at least, three chapters to this event, this one event of God descending on the temple and, and Solomon's response to that or Solomon's call for that and God's response to it. So there's a lot to work with here. And uh, what I want to do is to just kick us off and then Bobby and I will kind of just naturally dialogue about this we don't have this scripted which was probably obvious last night um, because you noticed i did stump bobby on a few of those questions you know, and, you know, but, you know, and, but no i didn't really um no we're, we're just familiar with each other and we're familiar with each other's uh, way of thinking and we're familiar with with chronicles we we've studied chronicles together so this just kind of comes out of our our flow so i want to begin with uh, how how the text begins and ends in terms of the prayer before you get to the prayer in chapter 6 there is this moment and Bobby will talk about what occasions that moment here in a second but there's this moment when the glory of the Lord fills the temple and it fills it in such a way that no one can officiate this is a visible presence of God and that sense of Filling the earth, or filling the temple, is a language that takes us back to creation. Um, and there's a lot of creation language in, in this text. So I think what we need to do is step back for a moment and think about how the creation itself is the temple of God. And I want to remind you of Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about how the, the heavens are the canopy And the earth is the footstool. And God says, you're going to build me a place? Well, this whole place is my resting place. This whole universe, this whole cosmos, I created this as my house. And this is where I rest. And that language of rest, heavens and earth, and God filling it, and God's presence, is exactly the kind of stuff you got going on in creation but link that with the whole story of Scripture. What are these mountaintop experiences? What are these mountaintop mighty acts of God? Creation? The descent of God upon the tabernacle when the same thing happens? It's filled with the glory of the Lord and the people, the priests cannot officiate? Or you think about here the temple? Or you think about the incarnation? When we have it tabernacled in the flesh, and the pouring out of the Spirit on Pentecost that fills us with the glory of God so that the church is the temple of God, and then the future event of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven upon the new heaven and new earth where God dwells with humanity, and there's no need for a temple because the whole thing is holy to the Lord, right? So what we have is a trajectory of divine presence, that this has been God's project in the creation. He created it to dwell. Think about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, as we have it in this text in Chronicles, as well as in Isaiah, and Psalm 132, this this dwelling or this resting, the Sabbath, when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and God rests, That's not just about God kind of getting on his couch and saying, boy, I'm I'm tuckered out after that. Resting is about God coming to dwell, that God creates a house in which God's going to dwell with us. And you see that theme and that trajectory all the way through the story. And it are these marker moments in the history of redemption that are not discontinuous, but are in fact a trajectory where God creates and has a project and has a goal that will ultimately God accomplishes in the new creation. But that filling the temple with the glory of the Lord, what occasions that, Bobby? What, what is it that, that sticks out to you um, in that moment?
0: Well, the occasion is the building of the temple, mm-hmm. of course, which in itself is kind of interesting that it took, uh, there's all kinds of symbolism here. It took Solomon seven years to build it. This isn't the seventh. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, let's see. It's the seventh month. Mm-hmm.
1: Feast of Tabernacles. It is
0: the Feast of Tabernacles, it's the, which is a seven days that it takes place. And at the end of that seven days, God is invited to come and dwell in this new temple, kind of like at the end of seven days at at creation that God rests on the Sabbath day. Now, that doesn't mean to say that God went to sleep. Mm -hmm. That means God has come to take uh, residence and to bring order and blessedness, or I want to say even life and out of chaos in this world that we are living in. When God comes into this place, like when you go back to Genesis, it says the Spirit of the Lord is on the face of the deep. And then order comes out of chaos and disorder, and all humans are one at that particular time. And you'll find that same emphasis in the Chronicler where all Israel is together. All of a sudden, and you have this... this This community that has experienced suffering and alienation and persecution and all those kinds of things. Division within the the people of God itself, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, maybe even the Samaritans at this time. But everything is coming together in the presence of God where when we talk about that presence, what does that mean? It means the world is being turned back to the way it was supposed to be in the first place. Mm-hmm. And when we enter in the presence of God, by entering into the temple, it's almost as if we are stepping back into Eden itself, mm-hmm. where humans and God have fellowship. And it's not just some of us, it's all of us.
1: Yeah, Remember the temple has all this Eden uh, decor about it. Absolutely. And the jewels that are a part of Genesis chapter 2, they're part of the temple. Absolutely. So the whole decor or the way in which the architecture um, or, or the, the gold <clears throat> and the silver and so on is put together is a representation of Eden itself. So Eden has come back to earth in terms yep. of the temple. Yep. And so that Israel, the land of Israel itself is supposed to be a, a new Eden with a new Adam, you know, with a new humanity. Um, And Israel is that kind of reboot, uh, a
0: reboot of the creation story itself. Absolutely. Uh, Excuse me. So when we move from that into the significance of this this presence of God, which again, at the end of chapter 5, we have a liturgical praise which says for... He is good that is the Lord and his steadfast love endures forever we recognize that from the psalms it ends with that as we go into chapter 7 so this proclamation that the Lord's steadfast love his hesed which is part of the god creed that Israel confesses all throughout the hebrew bible in exodus chapter 34 that God is the god of love that never gives us up which is important to the to this community that is basically a nobody right now and then when we confess that that's when God shows up the steadfast love never ceases then the glory of the Lord shows up and that's when Solomon addresses the people and how does he do that He
1: begins to pray yes well let me mention one other thing about this glory of the Lord and filling the temple you know, back in Numbers chapter 14, God actually interjects and, and swears out an oath. And, and the swearing of the oath is that I, the Lord, will fill the whole earth with my glory. Absolutely, I will fill the whole earth with my glory. And so when creation happens, of course, God comes to dwell And calls upon human beings to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, sometimes we read that simply as kind of a biological thing about reproduction. But I think there's a theological intent, because if you follow the whole notion of filling all the way through the story of Scripture, whether it's filling the temple or filling the earth or... Christ fills all things in Ephesians chapter 4 so that there's this cosmic sense of God's presence in the world and redeeming it and reclaiming it and making it holy and sanctifying it to God's self so that the whole earth is transformed. Uh, To fill the earth in Genesis 1 is much more than biology because who are going to fill this with? We fill it with the images of God. And the images of God are the glory of God. Paul puts it that way, right, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. The image of God is the glory of God. But um, well, we could also talk about, in terms of that image, uh, that we are the representatives of God in the world. Or as Irenaeus said in the second century, the, um, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being flourishing when human beings flourish, when they become all that God intended them to be, then the glory of God fills the earth. And so the project um, is about not only uh, God filling the earth, but our partnership with God in filling the earth. And so when God fills the temple with God's presence, it's a call to Israel to become the people of God and to image God. Absolutely. And to have a mission in the world, right? And we'll talk more about the mission as
0: we get to the end there. Absolutely. When when Moses quotes the Lord in Exodus 19 that the Lord brought Israel out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and carried them on eagles' wings to Himself, and He said, "You have become for Me a kingdom of priests; that this is who we are. Now, the whole world is Mine. Okay, mm-hmm. everything belongs to Me. But out of this, I have chosen you, and you will be My treasured possession." And this ties in that Genesis uh, promise in chapter 12 where the Lord tells Abraham, or Abram at the time, that through you I'm going to bless everybody. He's going to fill the world with His glory, but He's going to do that through Israel. Israel is a kingdom where everyone is a priest, not just the sons of Aaron, not just the Levites. All the Israelites are supposed to represent God to the world. This is why Ezekiel gets all bent out of shape. And he says, it's because of you that my name is blasphemed among the nations. So now when we get to the chronicler here, if and he's talking about Solomon's prayer. Through this, the building of the temple, Israel themselves can represent The one true God, not just because of some uh, uh, prejudice against the idols, but we are going to reflect the glory of the Lord back into the world so they can see what it is like when human beings live in relationship or covenant with God. It is a whole new community, or as Deuteronomy says in chapter 4, the world is going to look at us and say, what a wise people they are. When the people look at us and see that we love our neighbors as ourselves, we take care of aliens, we have the heart of the alien, as we were talking about last night. Or when we invite people who have no relationship to us at all, and we invite them to come and say, Our God is going to hear your prayers, even if you don't know who He is. So I think that this calling of Israel uh, to be the light to the nation, as Isaiah is going to say in 49... Was it just a small thing? But now this temple is, in, in Jewish thinking, the very center of the world. The rabbis would even say that God made this and then God created the world around it. Yeah. This, this is truly the, the, the navel of the world. Yeah. It's the cosmic mountain and everything is here. And we're supposed to bring the nations to God. Which I think Paul understood this in Romans, his priestly blessing or priestly task of bringing the Gentiles as Gentiles mm. to worship the one true God. Which yeah. is what so what well we have is
1: we have a, a reboot of creation. We have a renewal of Sinai. And now we have this moment that, uh, where God has come to dwell and calls Israel to its mission and calls Israel into relationship. And the temple becomes this, this symbol of God's chesed. Yep. The symbol of God's faithfulness. Of God's loyalty to God's people. And that the temple then is not, um, is not a piece of idolatry. It is rather God's gift to Israel <clears throat> as a means of grace by which they can recognize God's Faithfulness; they can always come back to the temple and find that chesed. not because you know uh, because they've earned it or something like that, right? No, we're going to hear some stories here in a moment of how they have to how they have to approach this. They approach this out of out of uh, humility, and out of a submission, and out of a seeking of God. But all of this is for the chronicler's audience, right? He retells the story. Whoever wrote this tells this story of Solomon's prayer, not just as a piece of history to say, hey, y'all remember when that happened? Oh, Wasn't that neat? No, this is about that God is about to renew it again. God's about to do this again. And so when we get to chapter 7, if my people, right, if my people will pray. And if they will seek me, we'll get to that in just a moment. God will do this again. And it's, and it's done again in the incarnation, and it's done again in the pouring out of the Spirit, and it's done again in our lives as God's presence dwells and transforms. So, where do you want to go with that? You want to go into the prayer itself now? And, I think so. so. How, okay, why don't yeah. you take us into the prayer itself? Um.
0: I, I think all that was necessary because we, we need to understand the importance of presence um, both in the Bible and for ourselves. And, um, and the temple, the scripture is going to really stress that it cannot become a piece of idolatry. The, the writer is going to say, I know that this temple cannot In fact, he asks the question in verse 18, which I think is really the big one, Who but will God indeed dwell with human beings on the earth? That's the question. Of course, Revelation 21 and 22 tell us the answer to that. Yes. God is (laughs) going to dwell with us. And it uses all this temple imagery Mm -hmm. to do it. God now, His dwelling is with humans. Inside his temple, where he has brought us. But this prayer begins in uh, verse uh, 12 and following, and uh, on this this wonderful day where Solomon comes before and he prays, he kneels down, lifts up his hands, and he, uh, of course, he's in a unique position. He says, There's never been anybody like this before, David included. And he asked the question, well, okay, Uh, but will God indeed dwell or reside with human beings? Even heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now, again, in the chronicler's day, the temple that they have been able to build, if you've read Haggai, you know that it's not much at all. Okay? So... If it's really great in Solomon's day, but he uses this language, it's not much at all. But in our day, it's even worse. We built you a shack. Okay, but you know, will God do it? Regard your servant's prayer. It's a plea for uh, the Lord to be attentive regardless of our situation. That it's a prayer for God to hear the future prayers of the people, would you say
1: that? Yeah, absolutely. And, it's a promise to that. I, let me come back to you the, the, that the heavens cannot contain. You know, Solomon is, in the Chronicles, quite well aware that God is transcendent. cannot be boxed in by yeah, the temple. Yeah. It can't be regulated by the cosmos. God is transcendent to the cosmos, the creator of the cosmos. But the question is will God dwell? Not, not do the heavens contain. So Solomon is kind of giving that, that nod <clears throat> to look, we, God, we know you're way beyond this building. But what he's also saying, it seems to me, is because of your chesed, because you love us, because you are faithful to us, because you are interested in us, you will dwell among us. Yeah. And this place will be a place of grace and forgiveness and communion. And we'll eat from the sacrifices and share this life together with you because you dwell in our midst and we will walk with you and you will walk with us. And it is Eden all over again. So though God transcends the cosmos, there is this expectation and this hope because of God's chesed that God truly dwells with Israel. The temple is no mere symbol. It's no mere symbol. Remember Moses went into the tabernacle, come out with what? You know, he encountered the glory of God dwelling in the tabernacle. Uh, and I think that when we think of the, the temple as a symbol, then it's easy to think about our bodies as a mere symbol and that the spirit doesn't really dwell within us either. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's <clears throat> a sense of, of uh, actuality about God's presence, that it's a genuine and authentic presence <clears throat> of grace
0: yeah and i want to build on that just for a second too um will god dwell with us uh and off the headset god is relational Mm -hmm. you know we usually talked about how the word seek is a really important word in chronicles i i have the the view that that goes both ways god blesses us if we seek him but god also is a seeking god god is seeking to have a relationship and that's what the symbol of the temple is. God will condescend to even have a relationship with us in our sinful state, in our unholy state, in our, our as a wandering Aramean state, as a, as a sojourner. And this is such good news. This is... This is the glory of Chronicles. This is the glory of the Hebrew Bible. And that God does not fit in this. I just want to throw this in there. There's a lot of anti-Judaic views that we, you know, the Jews were all this ritualistic stuff. Well, that's certainly not Chronicles. And, um, um, but the relational God. That's... Yeah,
1: but you know, I think we have to say there's ritual, right? But ritual is not a bad
0: word. Ritual is not a bad word. You know,
1: sometimes we, we think, oh, we don't want to do those rituals. And, Rituals are just about means of grace and rhythm of life and a sense of walking with God. I mean, we all need some, some kind of rhythm in life by which we walk with God. And walking with God includes rituals. We, we have baptism in the Lord's Supper, we have assembly, we have practices of prayer that we institute as rituals in our lives. We, we, We keep rest days or whatever it is, but we need rituals as a way of bringing order. Yeah, bringing order to our lives so that we are pointed in the right direction here. I mean, that's what rituals do. They remind us of what direction. That's why assembly is important, because when we assemble, we're reminded of who we are. We're reminded of God's grace, and we commune with God as a community, and we send each other out. And God sends us out from God's own presence. And so the temple, you can think about the church, you know, as a place where God dwells as well, but particularly in terms of the assembly as the place where God dwells, as the church is the temple of God as a corporate body and not just as individuals, right? Right. So there's the importance of assembly, which we also have here, because this is all Israel is assembled to experience this at the temple.
0: And they confess in unison. There's all kinds of emphasis on unity yeah, here and yeah. oneness uh, in these texts. And when Solomon finishes his general petition, which ends in verse 21, where he says, Hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. That's that's the general petition. That's that's the one over over everything. But then Solomon breaks this down into seven petitions. There's all kinds of sevens throughout this. There's seven petitions uh, that uh, seven situations and, and, and that cover all kinds of possible situations of life, both of people in his day, but also people in the Chronicler's day. And if we read this carefully in our day too. Yeah.
1: And we did say the seven is about seven days of creation, right? Absolutely. Now, we did say that, right? You did say that? Okay. We did. And we just want to make sure we got that. Okay. All right. Y'all go heard that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think right, I did. Go ahead.
0: So how do you want to do this? Uh, you want to take the first one there in verse 22? Well, yeah, I mean,
1: verse 22, if someone sins against another um, and, is, and is required to take an oath and comes and swears before your altar in this house. Notice it's a situation of injustice a situation of justice the temple is going to be a place of justice mm-hmm. as well so it, it's a it's a place of grace and mercy but it's also a place of justice so if you have a justice issue you bring it to the temple and if you and there it will be adjudicated right in some sense and may you hear from heaven and act and judge your servants in other words god is going to this is not about hear and forgive. God's going to bring justice into the situation in yeah. this particular case. Which yeah. is to make it right. Yeah, to make it right. Exactly. Make, make to make right. things right. Because we, we hear
0: the word judge oftentimes mm-hmm. just like the word judgment. Uh, and we oftentimes just naturally make that mean to punish. Mm-hmm. And it does mean that sometimes. But most of the time the word judge or judgment uh, in Scripture means to bring about um, Righteousness to produce uh, a sense of equity, to produce shalom, to bring in wholeness, that situation, yeah, to bring wholeness. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is what was in Eden. The Lord mm-hmm. looked and saw that it was very good, everything was just the way it was supposed to be. And so now, inside the temple, that is something that will be recreated because of the presence of God. The presence of God takes a situation that is unjust. And turns it into a situation that is a little eaten. That's pretty cool. Okay.
1: Go ahead to the second one.
0: Okay, and the second one in verse 24 and following, I really like it because it assumes, and this is something that Solomon is going to make explicit later, that, that the people of God are not perfect. And I like that because I don't know about anybody else. My life has been characterized by imperfection. Is that true of anyone else? And I grew up with this notion, I don't know about anybody else, but that I, I was taught and sometimes even taught myself that if the, the Old Testament, you had to be perfect in order to be in this relationship with God. That is just absolutely nuts. So Solomon comes along and he says, when your people having sinned, it's going to happen and it's going to continue to happen. He says, and they sin against you. That is the Lord himself. And they're defeated, an enemy, but turn again to you. They confess your name, pray and plead with you in this house. May you hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land. So he's going to make this a little more explicit later about exile. They go into captivity, but he's already hinting at it here, which is where the chroniclers people are and if you know the story of chronicles there's somebody who fits this over and over and over and over again his name is manasseh manasseh was the most wicked of all the kings and this is one of the great differences between the deuteronomistic history and chronicles in the deuteronomistic history manasseh is just this evil dude and that's the reason the everybody went to yeah. babylon and you never hear a good thing about him in second kings right? uh, uh, second Deuterium kings, kings right? so, Uh, It was in the Bible, and um, it was in the Bible. Hey, the Hebrew preacher once said that somewhere in the Bible, the Spirit said, so that's what I did. And when Manasseh was taken, it is the chronicler who tells us that he, after his eyes were poked out, and he's sitting there in exile, he remembered the Lord, and he called on the Lord, and the Lord heard his prayer. And the Lord forgave him. And what did the Lord do? The Lord brought him back out of exile. It's almost like every Israelite is a little Manasseh. Every Israelite can be a person who comes out of exile back into the very presence of God. And the Lord not only brought him back, he restored him to the throne. You talk about a great story of grace, that's it, right there, And the paradigm is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. And so we'll go on to the next one. Uh,
1: In fact, the next two we can probably do together a little bit. Verses 26 is the next one uh, where it talks about a drought. And then 28 following talks about a a famine of some sort. But both of these are about the land. Absolutely. the The land is responsive to the faithfulness of Israel, right? When Israel is faithful, the, the rain comes, and the crops are protected, and the food is available. It's, it's, it's an Eden. Yeah. But when Israel sins, then it affects the land. The land responds to Israel's life in the land because the land is Israel's inheritance, which is mentioned in uh, verse, what, 27, I think it is. But notice that every time it's also this this kind of response of um, uh, hear and well God will hear and forgive and then do something. If the people will confess, will pray and confess and turn, it's pray, confess and turn, right? Then God will hear, forgive and do something. So there's, it's this relational dimension, but it is also this triangle of God and Israel. But it's not just God and Israel, it's God, Israel, and the land. Because the land is Israel's inheritance. Yeah. And uh, we'll see this phrase about the healing of the land eventually here in just a moment. But yeah. um, at the end of that, <clears throat> section in verse uh, 29, 30... Uh, after this uh, talking about the troubles and the suffering and the famine, yeah, we got an important line here in verse 30, where after all those sorrows, Solomon says, may you hear from heaven and your dwelling place, forgive and render to all whose heart know you, according to all their ways, for only you know the heart. Mm-hmm. You know the heart. Remember, uh, those of you who were here last night, about the heart language in Chronicles. And Chronicles has more heart language than any other book of the Old Testament except Psalms. So it's not about this external ritual that we just go through, the motions, and that's not what Chronicler is interested in. God is seeking seekers, right? God is seeking hearts, hearts that yearn for him, yearn for God, and yearn for relationship with God and communion with God. And so the heart is going to be always the critical factor in the Chronicles telling of this story. And if, as we pray and we confess and we turn, the critical factor is going to be, okay, what's that heart doing? What's that heart about? Yeah. And God will respond in relationship to
0: the heart. Absolutely. I mean, And this uh, notion that that the land is suffering, by the way, Mm. if Israel is sort of like an Adam, Adam was placed in the garden to tend God's creation. And when Israel does not function the way Adam was created to, it is not just humans that suffer. It is the everything we were created to take care of, suffers. Mm. And Hosea, he says that there's no knowledge of God in the land. And then he lists off swearing and lying and all this kind of stuff. And then he says, therefore the land mourns and the fish are dying and the animals are suffering, which is really interesting. So when we when we come back to this place where the, the temple symbolizes God's presence, like in creation, where it brought life out of nothing, basically, when God's healing grace comes to the people, not only does it he heal the people, but it he heals all creation. When grace comes upon us, we become the people who we were created to be. Being the kingdom of priests isn't just for the nations, but we reflect God's glory into the whole world, which we... Bring a healing presence to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense to
1: me. We have, you know, our, our, our actions affect creation. I mean, that ought to be obvious to we Westerners and technology and so on. Yeah. Uh, and our sin affects creation. So there's kind of a, a theology of ecology, right? A sense of ecology here that human beings can affect climate. Human beings can affect the land, yeah. and, uh, and, and when we get ordered again and reorder ourselves in terms of, uh, of partnering with the land in appropriate ways, then there can be healing in the land by God's grace and God's power. But what is this? Uh, oh, you want to say another well, something about that? Well, I just wanted that? to mention yeah. that the
0: very symbol of the rain mm-hmm. okay. is this symbol of... Of grace that's coming down. Uh, it's even in the Psalms. It's compared to that the, the dew that is on Aaron's beard and all that, and mm-hmm. bringing out wonderful, beautiful uh, life that flows out of this this rain. Now, again, in Israel, it's kind of like most desert places. It doesn't get a whole lot of rain. It's not like Alabama. Okay, <laughs> it's not like that at all. Most of the it, it's this dew that you get that comes, that brings life out of almost an, an arid, arid place. And so when this moisture shows up, which is something that's celebrated throughout the Hebrew Bible, life comes. And that's what God says. When, when we repent and you hear our prayer, the rain comes and the land responds life as a whole in creation starts to function just like it did in Eden when we are what we're supposed to be. Go on. Well, I think one of the more
1: interesting things about this prayer, well, there's a lot of things, of course, right, Um, is in verse 32. Oh, yeah. This temple is not just for Israel. You got to hear that one. This temple is not just for Israel. This is for all peoples in some sense. Remember how Jesus got a little upset, right? He threw out the money changers because they were doing that in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus says, I have a zeal for the house because this is a house of prayer. Anybody remember the rest of it? For the nations. For all nations, right? This is a house of prayer for all nations and you've turned it into a den of robbers. That's right. And what we see here in the Chronicler is um, the, an emphasis on this, uh, even more so than in Kings. There's an emphasis on the inclusion of the, of the as my translation says here, New RSB says, foreigners uh, or people who are distant, who are outside of Israel, that they can come to the temple too, and they can pray. And watch what the language is here. May you hear from your heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigners ask of you in order that, here's the missional purpose. Here's the missional dimension. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. So the temple itself has a missional purpose. It is not simply a kind of a, a place of exclusion, where um, everybody else is going to be outside God's grace and outside of God's interest and outside of God's love. No, people can come to the temple, and uh, and, in, and everyone is invited to do so.
0: It's almost as if Solomon is functioning, and I want to throw this out here for us to think about, as a high priest. Mm. For, all, for the all the nations. Yeah, yeah. He's a son of David, and the son of David going to come, and he's going to do that same kind of thing, be a high priest for all the nations. And Israel themselves, this is part of their mission, again, that we were talking about a little while ago. This missional task of Israel that the temple has is what they as a kingdom of priests are supposed to have. This is not ours. This is God's. And if we function as God's people the way God intended us to do that, then the nations themselves, as it says very clearly, not only the foreigners, but he stresses this, who are not your people. Mm-hmm. They are yeah. not your people. They're, they're not Israelites. They are not like us. We might want to say they're not Church Christ. They might be Baptists. They might be Muslim, by the way. They might be whatever they are. They are people who will call out to the one true God. They're going to look to this place, and you, you will hear their prayer in heaven and answer it. And then they'll know. That is so cool. And that just blows a lot of things out of the water Because Israel was placed in this world to be a blessing to the whole creation. And that's what, I want to extend this all the way down to the Great Commission. The Great Commission is carrying out this temple prayer. Make disciples
1: of all nations. Absolutely.
0: Mm -hmm. To come and worship before the one true God. Mm -hmm. And that's Jesus' task now to do what Solomon has already done. And he's going to lead us. As the Hebrew preacher stresses this over and over and over, he is our liturgist. He is bringing us into the presence of God to worship the one true God.
1: Well, we need to get to an ending point here pretty soon. But, uh, but, man, there's a lot of things I'd like to talk about. But in verse 34, we get the sixth of the, uh, if you, when your people go out to battle against their enemies. Now, I think, I think about that, friend. battle against the enemies. What kind of enemies are we talking about here? Well, in the theology of the Chronicler, the enemies are those who are trying to subvert this mission of God in the world. So as we think about the enemies of God, we can think about, for example, in Revelation, the enemies of God trying to subvert the mission of God in the world. Um, So the enemies of Israel who want to destroy Israel here in in this context, um, God will say, okay, I'll hear you and I will... Hear from heaven and I will maintain your cause, right? I'll I'll I'm gonna give you the victory. Because the victory is about my faithfulness to my mission in the world, and I'm not going to let these enemies subvert it and destroy it. And even when if I send you into exile, which is the next one, the seventh one here, even if I send you into exile, I'm still not going to let the enemies win. All right? Because I love Israel I, it's about the chesed I have for Israel
0: right. and I just want to build off that just real quickly uh, I I think of Jehoshaphat you know he's about to go out and his military planning is not to go get the generals and see if they got the greatest M1 tank and all that kind of jazz it's to go get the choir yeah
1: second Chronicles 20. yeah and mm-hmm.
0: then they start singing and praying and asking God to come and that then the the enemies of God are not defeated by soldiers with swords and spears but by the levites and the priests singing praises to the Lord mm-hmm. that's how they're defeated so chronicles presents Israel not as as a military empire but I really like Scott Hahn's phrase for this. He wrote a theological commentary on Chronicles, and he says that the kingdom of God in Chronicles is a liturgical empire. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like <that>. A liturgical <laughs> like empire. Yeah. So we sing, and then people say, oh, man, I don't want to mess with those people. So, Give mm-hmm.
1: um, us the seventh one here. All right. Tell me.
0: Seventh one. That uh, begins in verse 36. And this one speaks almost directly to the chronicler's own situation. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Isn't that a great line? There's no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them. And give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land that is far or near then if they come to their senses <clears throat> in the land which they have been taken captive, repent, and this goes through this little, almost a, almost a pattern that John Mark talked about a minute ago. They repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. If they repent in their heart, And in their soul, in the land of their captivity, toward their land, which you have given them uh, to their ancestors, uh, I'm going to skip down a couple of verses to verse 39, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer, forgive them. And that's exactly what God does. And now they have gone from there and they are here. And it's almost as if the chronicler is inviting them. Now, mm. is the time for us to join David. In fact, that's exactly what he's going to do in a minute. Yeah,
1: this is the longest of the sections of the yeah. seven. This is the longest because <laughs> it speaks. It does speak directly to the audience of the chronicler. That and it's the assurance. You know, the, the whole question the people who are reading Chronicles for the first time are asking: Are is God going to take us back? Does God still care about us? Does God still love us? And the response they get here is if you pray and you repent, God will bring you back. God will forgive and God will heal the land and God will be back and the temple will be restored in in a sense of God's presence. So there is this assurance of God's chesed. So in the ending of that of that section, Solomon opens up the prayer to say, uh, Lord, come to your resting place, arise, get out of your heavenly throne and come here and rest here. This is your Sabbath. This is your creation Sabbath. Come and rest here and your priest, your people will be people of righteousness. And so the, the whole ending of the liturgy is this petition for God to get up out of his throne, you might say, get up off the throne and come and dwell with the people of Israel as a, a sense of yeah. communion and presence. <clears throat> and that's when then the people respond. Well, that's when God does the fire thing. So I tell
0: Absolutely. me about that. Buyer. God does bring the fire. But I want to yes. mention one thing here. This is a psalm of ascent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's quoting Psalm 132 here. Right. And if you go and you read, and I did this today. I don't know why I never did this before. okay? But it dawned on me today, this is a psalm of ascent. So I went out and I read all the psalms of ascent. And then read the prayer again. Okay, This is an invitation to God to come, almost as a pilgrim, to come and rest in His temple. And this is almost the conclusion of the Psalms of Ascent. Mm -hmm. You know, 133 and thirty-four come next, but God, come on in. And the Psalms of Ascent tell the story of the pilgrims of Israel coming to the temple and finding God. Mm. And that's when this story opens up in the next chapter, evoking some pretty powerful previous stories. It says, when Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings. We talked about those last night, those communion Sacrifice. sacrifices. sacrifices and burnt and, offerings, right? And, yeah. and, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the land. Uh, Cannot enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down on the pavement and they shouted out, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. They just saw it.
1: And then they offered 120,000 sheep in sacrifice. For a week of festive gathering, right? <clears throat> I mean, what are you gonna do with 120,000 sheep? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of sheep. You that think, you think sheep. about an, an oxen, and there's what, 22,000 oxen, something like that? Uh, I think if you did that, if you did the math, there's, you know, they're sacrificing four or five animals every minute, which is just ridiculous. I mean, yeah. So, probably the chronicler is using hyperbole here. What he wants to do is to say, When God came down and rested, we had a big party.
0: We had a party.
1: And we celebrated for a week. And then we went another week. We did 14 days of celebration and feasting. And then on the eighth day. (laughs) Notice that on the eighth day. That is the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Which is New Creation Day. You might think about it like that. Because the early church called the resurrection of Jesus as the eighth day. Yeah. Right. It's the day of God's dwelling among us and celebrating God's presence among us. And Israel did that by eating and drinking. And then Solomon, you know, it's after it's, Solomon sends him home on the 23rd day. And and then God comes to him in a vision. And this is where we get that famous text, that famous revival text uh, in first and second Chronicles, chapter seven in verses 14 why don't you take us there? Oh, you already did your Bible. Okay. You already closed it up, brother. Let me get it. Yeah. Here we go. You know, you'll know this one, right? Beginning of verse 12 to verse 14. But verse 14, particularly, which is kind of a summary of the whole temple prayer. This is not just some independent, autonomous little abstract, right? This mm-hmm. is. God's response to the prayer. Solomon, pray, God, will you do this? Will you do this, God? If this happens, will you do this? If this happens, will you do this? If this happens. And God says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And heal their
0: land. And that's the promise they needed to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's the promise that we all need to hear. Uh, We are aliens and sojourners and full of transient lives. And we gather together in God's presence. Every time we gather in His name. And what we're looking for is the same kind of healing that they were looking for. Not only the healing, but to experience the sense of renewal and the presence of our God, um, which I think is just a great blessing.
1: Yeah, so I've heard some people critique you know, some of the uses of this in terms of revival, you know, revival movements and... Uh, but I think this is not simply about Israel. Right. This is a promise to the people of God. And we are Israel. We are a part of Israel. We've been grafted into Israel as the church. And that God's dwelling is still present among us in a different way. So the, the promise that if we will pray and we will seek the face of God and we will humble ourselves, God will hear. Yeah. And God will forgive. And God will heal the land. And when, when we think about healing the land, don't think, in, don't think simply in terms of, um, seems to me at least, that uh, we should not think simply in terms of kind of uh, political healing. You know, I've heard that used that way here, that healing the land is we're going to get the right president in place. You know, if we pray hard enough, we're going to get the right president. I, I don't think that's the point at all. Because if you read Solomon's prayer, what was the land about? It was about rain and crops. And it was about the goodness of creation. That's the healing. Yeah. God's going to heal the creation. you got to keep that triangle in mind. God, Israel, and land. And so to heal the land, I'm going to forgive the people and I'm going to heal the land. Because when they sin, they destroyed the land. But when they repent, I will forgive and I will heal the land. Yeah. And so the connection of the cosmos... <clears throat> In the sense of the cosmic redemption. This is part of what God is interested in in redemption. That it's not simply about you know um, getting our sins forgiven and going to heaven. No, it's about getting our sins forgiven and healing the land. And that involves not only the, the kind of cosmic nature sort of thing. But it also is about restorative justice. It's about justice filling the earth. So that when the presence of God... Fills the earth, and the glory of the Lord fills the earth, that the <clears throat> earth is filled with justice and with righteousness and with peace. I and flows like an of our ever-flowing flowing yeah. stream. Yeah,
0: and fills the earth. Yeah. And um, I think you got two do you minutes, think man. Romans eight connects to this. Yeah,
1: well, that healing of the land. Uh, you know, Romans eight talks about the liberation of the creation from its
0: bondage, right? Uh, healing the land. Yeah, the Spirit comes, gives life to the mortal body yeah. of Jesus, yeah. and promises or, to do that to us and heal the land. Right. And um, well, you think about Psalm
1: two. I mean, not Psalm two, but Joel two, right? The the land is lamenting and the land is uh, is being destroyed. Absolutely. But then God says, "But there'll come a day when I will pour out my Spirit." Yep. Joel chapter two. Joel chapter 2, verse 28, yeah. which is the pouring God of the Spirit in
0: Acts 2. And he's got three yeah. targets in that Joel 2 text. He says, uh, do not worry or don't worry anymore to the to this earth. Then he talks to the animals, names the animals explicitly in Joel, and then the people. So when the God pours out the Spirit upon the church,
1: upon Israel once again, it has implications for the land. Absolutely. You know, it's not simply something that happens in our head or in our heart. It's something that happens in the cosmos. And that's why sin destroys the earth. But
0: righteousness will heal it. It will heal it. So this well, is a, go ahead. You wrap us up. Okay. This is a great prayer. Uh, it is uh, programmatic for the whole Bible. And I think it says something about our ministry in the world today. And our message to our own people, in our churches. And uh, with that, I want to just say thank you for coming out. And I know it's late, and I appreciate it. I know I want to thank John Mark. This is great. I appreciate President. Uh, why don't we just end with, with a him. kind of a
1: temple lit- liturgy reflection here? That uh, um, glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.